From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Usually on this program, we bring together two scientists to build interdisciplinary connections. But one of the research efforts we're talking about this week is already really interdisciplinary. So this week, we're going rogue. The climatologist, the political scientist, and the cultural historian, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the intersection of human nature and technology. And as you might have come to expect from this show, we'll be approaching that connection from two very different perspectives. Except today, we won't just have two perspectives because one of the research efforts we're discussing is already quite interdisciplinary. And so for the first time, we've got not two, but three guests on the program today. With us in studio are Luke Fernandez and Susan Matt, both of Weber State University in northern Utah. He's a political scientist in the Department of Computer Science. She's a social and cultural historian, and together they're the authors of a recent book called Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid, Changing Feelings About Technology from the Telegraph to Twitter. Luke and Susan, I'm glad you guys are here too. Hi, happy to be here. Great to be here, thanks. Joining us by phone from the North Carolina Institute for Climate Studies is Scott Stevens. He was the first author on a recent paper for the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society that adds a startling data point to something that we've all sort of known, but for which there just hasn't been that much research in the past, the link between precipitation and fatal car accidents. Scott, thanks for being with us. I am more than happy to be here via phone. It is the closest I'm going to get to a vacation to Utah this year. Let's start today by talking about car crashes. That is Canada's answer to Blink-182, the punk band Simple Plan, with a song they didn't even bother to title from their 2004 album. It starts with a scene we all know too well. It's almost cliche, in fact. It's a car crash in the rain. And now I want you to think about this. This is cliche for a reason. We all know that rain makes car crashes more likely, but how much more likely that... Well, we didn't know that, not until my next guest and his team did a multi-year high-resolution radar analysis and mapped weather events against 125,000 car crashes spanning the entire continental United States over a six-year period. When they did that, they found that the risk of a fatal car crash increases by 34% during active precipitation. Scott Stevens, I think the thing that floored me more, even than the findings, was that nobody had done this work before. Why was that? What's different about ours is that we were able to do it with this high-precision radar data. So instead of having to make a broad sweeping conclusion like today was a wet day in Salt Lake City, we can say it was raining at that exact spot at that exact time. That's what finally has allowed us to, to kind of stand apart from the literature that exists already. Car crashes claim about 35,000 lives each year in the United States alone. When diseases take that many lives, we study the heck out of them. We try to identify the key aggravating factors. We don't give that sort of research attention to car accidents. Like you said, there had been some on this connection. You have offered some more here, but we sort of accept it as a fact of life. Why do you think that is? 
I think compared to disease, we view driving as something that we have control over. We don't view ourselves as a statistic or a risk. We say, oh, well, that's something that happens to careless people. I can make sure that it doesn't happen to me. And I think that's a key difference in how we view something like cancer, where we know that there are risk factors, but we also know that it can happen to anybody. You noted in the study that a lot of previous work was based on what the officer on the scene wrote in the report or what the nearest weather station reported at the time. Why weren't these always the best sources of information? A couple of reasons, and that's why this is so different. So with the nearest weather station, while we have a very, very good network of weather stations in the United States, you're, you're never more than probably 10 miles away from a weather station, no matter where you're standing. But 10 miles is a great distance when it comes to precipitation. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that there are plenty of times where it could be pouring rain in one place and bone dry four miles away. Using a weather station can give us a good overall picture about whether or not it was generally a wet day somewhere, but really doesn't tell you whether it was definitively raining at this particular point at this particular time. And then with the police reports, it's the same kind of thing. Unfortunately, with fatal crashes, there's very often no eyewitness to what actually happened. It's an officer shows up 10, 20 minutes later. They're forced to make some guesses about what the conditions were like when the crash happened. They may note that the road was wet, but that doesn't necessarily tell us that it was definitely raining when the crash happened. And as a result of these sorts of discrepancies, the estimates for how much precipitation increases car crashes, it varied a lot, right? Like from 10% increase to a 76% increase, that's huge variation. It really is. That's that's a paper I found uh, that just got published last year that was kind of a meta-analysis. So that was the range of values that they found from looking at a bunch of other studies that took place everywhere from the U.S. to Canada to Europe, but they all used different methodologies. And so I think that's part of why that range was so wide. Why is it important for information like this to be more specific? What can we do with that? What came out of this that I think is actually actionable that people could take away with them is the risk that comes from even light rainfall. That was what was so surprising, I think. Like you said, it's it's not new information that driving in the rain makes it more likely to get in a crash, but it was interesting to find it on the light rain scale. Even at very light, like drizzly type rains, there was still a 25% increase in the likelihood of a fatal crash. You also found that heavy precipitation nearly doubles the risk of a fatal car crash over that light precipitation. Again, this isn't surprising, but it wasn't known before in this exacting way. As these numbers came to light, did they start to impact the way that you drive and maybe when you decide to drive? Me personally, no, but that's only because I already drive like a grandma. I've always been the extra cautious type. I'm a private pilot in my spare time, and so I've got kind of a culture of safety built into me, and everything's redundant, and I don't take risks I don't have to take. So I've always kind of driven that way. It has made me more aware of how other people are driving, though. Every time that it rains now, I can't help but notice how other people are responding to it. I wanted to drop back into the process of this because it's so fascinating to me. Your team used this weather database that provides estimates of precipitation down to a tenth of a degree of latitude and longitude and on a five-minute time scale. And you use that to identify precipitation at the time and location of pretty much every fatal car accident in which alcohol or drugs were not a known factor. And you did that over the course of six years That just sounds like a huge undertaking. It took a lot of computer processing and a lot of writing code on my part. 
the database, which is actually one hundredth of a degree latitude and longitude every five minutes, which is a very, very fine resolution. It's about one kilometer, so I tell people it's a few city blocks. The process wasn't all that difficult. Each one of these car crashes has a latitude and longitude associated with it and a time. And so from there, it was mostly an exercise in data organization to go find the right file for that timestamp, open up this massive grid of 25 million data points, and extract the right number. Then it all just had to be compiled into a big master table that was made. And then from there, we just got to do what data scientists do and just start flying through numbers. Does it ever feel strange to you to like kind of like reduce these really chaotic events to numbers, to data, to digital points? It's easy to kind of view the weather as numbers. Once you get into human health, though, it starts to get more personal all of a sudden. There were a couple of times where I was doing this where I had to take a step back and realize every one of these rows of data that I have was a person. This was the worst day of somebody's life. A whole family got ruined because of this one line of data. It starts to feel a little bit more personal where it's not just numbers anymore. You don't distinguish in the paper between rain or sleet or snow, and you write that a logical extension of this work is the exploration of precipitation type. Is that what's coming next for you? If we're able to get our hands on the data, that's the limitation right now. But it is coming eventually. It's going to be a pretty massive step forward. That's Scott Stevens. His team's work on the relationship between precipitation and fatal car accidents was recently published in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. Hey, Scott, can you uh, hold the line for a little bit and listen in as I chat with our next guest? I'm looking forward to it. Can anybody hear me? Am I talking to myself? My mind is running empty in this search for someone else who doesn't look right through me. Okay, so today we're going to stick with the band Simple Plan. That's the song Astronaut from the band's 2011 album. And you might say it's a song about being bored, lonely, angry, and stupid. That, as it happens, is the title of a new book by my next guests, Luke Fernandez and Susan Matt, who make the case that rapid advances in technology haven't just changed the way we travel, consume, and interact. These changes have actually prompted an entirely new idea about what it means to be human at an emotional level. Susan, let me start with you. You and Luke wrote that at one time, Americans regarded new inventions like the telegraph as the astonishing creation of divinity, believing that they had harnessed supernatural powers. Amazed by their technologies, they sometimes worried their new machines might be crossing divinely established lines, taking power from the gods. Wow. When do you think we started to lose that sort of awe when it comes to technological advances? It seems like people began to lose that awe in the late 19th century, and certainly by the early 20th century. Psychologists were telling people not to feel awe, that awe was a primitive emotion, and that humans shouldn't be scared of forces outside of themselves, but rather should be masters of them. And, and do you think that happened as a result of the fact that we were just in this onslaught of technology and eventually we had to relent? I think that's a big part of it. When we looked at people's reactions to the telegraph, the folks in the 1840s thought the telegraph was taking power from God, but that God kind of wanted them to have the ability to communicate through the air. There were some skeptics who thought maybe the telegraph was going to interfere with precipitation and that if you tried to harness the electricity, it would change weather patterns. 
by the time we get to the telephone or the phonograph, people are marveling at these, but often they're marveling at the fact that they themselves were able to conquer these forces, to harness them. Certainly that's true with the radio. They feel like maybe these are kind of supernatural waves they're tuning into, but they're really celebrating man's power rather than God's power. So I'm really curious, like, how you guys got on to this, because instead of looking at these technological milestones as events in history, you looked at them as influencers for human social evolution. I'm really curious how this happened. Were you guys sitting over coffee one day and just went like, we should write a book about this? Yeah, uh, Susan is the historian, and uh, I'm sort of less historically minded, but I definitely look at all the pundits nowadays who are asking questions like, is Google making us stupid? Is Facebook making us lonely? Are we experiencing narcissism epidemic because we're looking at social media so often? And those types of questions are being asked, but we're asking them about the last 30 years. And we wanted to look at the more distant past. And Luke, you're a professor of computer science. Uh, So naturally, your bachelor's degree was in political science and your master's degree was in political science and your Ph.D. is in political science as well. (laughs) I'm wondering, both as a computer scientist and political scientist, when you're trying to understand how Americans think about things like vanity and pride and egotism across multiple generations, how do you observe and measure those changes over time? You know, it's not quantitatively based. It's uh, qualitative. So we looked at memoirs, journals, newspapers from earlier eras, and through reading those, that material got a sense of how people felt about pride. Were they feeling vanity? Were they feeling alone? Did they experience that as solitude? Did they experience that as loneliness? You can get a qualitative sense of how people felt. Susan, what do you think is the emotional attribute that was changed the most by technology? I think there are two that are really closely linked. One is that Americans have found increasing license to celebrate themselves uh, in the 18th and 19th century to focus over much on the self, to celebrate the self was seen as the sin of vanity and pride, and uh, you risked uh, incurring God's wrath for being so full of yourself since you were mortal and um, frail and flawed. Um, By the 20th century, we see this rising sense of self that it's perfectly acceptable to celebrate yourself. At the same time, we see a declining sense of the grandeur of the universe outside of you. So in the 19th century, people felt awed by things bigger than themselves. Today, we find that a lot of people feel awed by the things they themselves create. Susan, your book makes the case that technology is changing humanity at an emotional level. And it prompted me to rethink an assumption that I've had, which is that there's something of a fixed range of emotional states. Like there's this thing called happiness and there's this thing called sadness and anger and and whatever else the the emoticons are there for. There's a lot of them. I recognize there's a lot of them. But I've always thought that like we all had them. We've all always had them. But I think you guys have made the case that says they come and go with the technological environment that we live in, maybe the environment that we live in. So do you think that our relationship with technology has prompted entirely new emotions or at least variants of emotions that didn't exist in the past? I think that's true. Uh, Historians of the emotions, as you say, believe that we don't have a set repertoire of emotions across all times and places and cultures that instead are 
ways of expressing ourselves and what we express varies across space and time. And so in the book, we're arguing that technology changes our feelings. Religion also changes our feelings. Capitalism changes our feelings. Um, so there are many forces at work. We focused on the technological changes. And we think that there are some brand new emotions that have come into play, like FOMO, <laughs> for instance. You know, when we started the question, are selfies making us narcissistic? Or often it was phrased, are we becoming more narcissistic? To us, that seemed like kind of an absurd question because narcissism doesn't even exist as a concept prior to the 1890s. So how in the world can you map that change over time if it's a non-existent category in other decades and centuries? You did spend a lot of time in Utah, but also across the United States, interviewing people about their relationships with technology and their emotional relationships with technology. Is the next step to look at this in a global way, or are you ready to say goodbye to the subject and move on to something else? Luke? You know, if if you spend the last decade writing a book, uh, it, it does feel like you want to you want to move on. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to think a bit about what we've written about. And I think some of the the, the lessons to draw from the book is first that uh, emotions aren't static; they they change across time. And if they do change across time, maybe we can reform them or or mold them to a way that better suits uh, and is more in keeping with our our best vision of humanity. And the second sort of lesson to draw to is that emotions, if they're not static, if they're shaped by technology, we should think about the design of our technologies and try to design them in such a way that they also promote our best sort of most humane feelings. That's Luke Fernandez and Susan Matt. Their new book is called Bored, Lonely, Angry, and Stupid. So now it's time for an introduction. Susan and Luke, this is climatologist Scott Stevens. And Scott, this is historian Susan Matt and political scientist Luke Fernandez. Hi. Hi. Hi there. Scott, your work uses technology to help us understand a risk to human life. And Susan and Luke, your book describes technology as something of a risk to humanity. So I guess the way I'd like to start this discussion is by asking all of you whether technology is making us more human or less human. And I'm going to give you all bonus points if you don't equivocate on this one. I think technology and making tools is part of being human, but we may want to consider what it is we're creating. Uh, we end the book with a quote from Langdon Winner, who argues that part of what may make us wise humans is figuring out which tools we want and which we don't. Susan's response is going to be a lot more eloquent than mine. But over here on the data science side, I don't know that the technology that we employ over here makes us more or less human. I think that what we're doing over here in the natural sciences is we're using technology to quantify the natural world around us, whether that's humanity or otherwise. Luke, you were listening in and I, you're in studio, so I can see you were furiously scribbling some notes while I was chatting with Scott Stevens. Was there a question that you wish I had asked him about his research that I didn't get to? Our larger narrative is, is partly about the transformation of perception of, of human limits, that whereas in the 19th century, people had a perception of their limits, increasingly, we are less attendant to those limits than, than we are in the past. And Scott, he's trying to remind us in part that we have limits, and that's important. We need to be attendant to our technologies, to our limitations, that we can't do all things at once. We can't text and drive. And I think perhaps we're aware of those dangers, but we're often perhaps not as aware as we should be and that we need to be reminded of our limitations. And I think um, your research seems to be one of those reminders. I hope so. This is one of those cases driving where if you ask everybody on the internet, it turns out everyone is an above average driver. 
I, I think that acknowledging our own limitation is a huge part of this, and it's easy for us to look at distant statistics. You know, even even the numbers as large as they are, you know, 35,000 people a year die in car crashes, whether that's because of the rain or texting or alcohol or anything else, but that's, that's a staggering number. If you break it down, that means that statistically speaking, two or three people have died in a car crash since we started this phone call. But two or three people out of the entire United States makes it so easy to disassociate ourselves from it and say that that's somebody else. You know, they must have done something wrong. I'm better than that. I know better, and I won't let that happen to me, which is, of course, what everybody thinks until, until it does. One intersection I see between your work and ours is this idea that we can effortlessly assimilate new tools into our definition of what it means to be human um, and that people are driving and thinking they can drive in all conditions or with all sorts of distractions or with different road conditions and that there's little risk. We definitely talked to people who said, you know, I have now incorporated the cell phone into what I think it means to be human. I think people would say, I now incorporate the car into what it means to be human because we take this mobility for granted as part of our new kind of radius of activity. So, you know, as we're augmenting our powers, it, it's a good thing to remember that we're still human inside them, inside these boxes, and we don't suddenly have superpowers that shield us from risk. That's a very good point. And it's, it's, I think it, it's interesting because it goes beyond recognizing the limits of a human, and it goes even as far as recognizing the limits of the technology itself. To hop into a car and just assume that it will safely get you anywhere in any conditions. Yeah, I don't know. Is, is having this technology, having these big tools, is it making us feel overconfident? Is it making us feel more invincible than we should be, both from a safety standpoint and from like an emotional standpoint? I think that's a really important question. And um, I guess you're a pilot, too. You're probably attendant to uh, the recent crashes of, of, of airplanes, where we've outsourced perhaps too much of our navigation to these sophisticated navigation systems. Uh, maybe we need to sort of revisit the interfaces between ourselves and our technologies and, and how much of our cognitive abilities we want to outsource to technology. That's a good point. I, I, this is, I don't know if this is something you guys can speak to or not, but it it brings up a thought I had not very long ago, which is an over-reliance on technology. I see it every now and then in aviation where, you know, folks are relying too much, I think, on computerized navigation tools we have, which is great. You know, the technology is wonderful. It makes things more redundant. It makes things safer. You know, anything that reduces confusion in a cockpit is a positive. But sometimes I get the sense that some folks are becoming sort of complacent toward the basic fundamental skills that they learned one time because now the technology is doing it for them. And I've seen that lately manifest in car commercials where, you know, you have these new, the fancier cars will help you stay in your lane. You know, they'll alert you if the traffic is stopping in front of you. And that, I think that's a great tool, but the attitude I see conveyed on some of these commercials, to me, almost seems dangerous. They're taking the attitude of, we all text when we drive, right? The car will make sure that you don't crash. And that kind of bothers me. Is that something that, that you think factors into the kind of things that you've seen as technology's changed and we've kind of integrated it into our lives? We definitely see that Americans today have incredible faith both in themselves and their technologies and think that they can do it all. And, you know, we interviewed people who say, oh, sure, I have, you know, 58 tabs open at once and three screens going on, and there's no problem uh, with that. And, and somehow nothing is going to get lost in the shuffle. We certainly did see this great faith that people could both operate things safely and that 
the the tools themselves were equipped with these new superpowers that they had great uh, faith and uh, hope for. So in preparation to not sound like a clueless idiot, I went and did some research, and I've been reading some of some of y'all's work. I read a couple of interviews that you had done, and I read the abstracts, and I read a little bit of the book. It's fascinating to me, this idea of loneliness and how the entire concept of loneliness seems to be changing. Like the very definition of what it even means is different than what it used to be. And I thought it was really neat to hear the historical aspect, which is correct me if I'm not interpreting this correctly, but are you saying that people basically used to see solitude as a virtuous thing, like something to be strived for every now and then? Absolutely. Uh, Philosophers would talk about it, but everyday people would as well. Ministers certainly celebrated it. And the word was just in much more common use. Yeah, That's really, really interesting because today it almost seems like in this era of Twitter and Facebook and how many followers do you have, it almost seems like we view loneliness as failure. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. The word loner comes into uh, the lexicon in the late oh, 1940s. Wow. It didn't That's exist until then. Um, and up till then, it was fine to be on your own. After the 1940s, it's kind of, you're questionable. You might be Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> That's a very good point. Now it seems like we view loneliness as though there's something defective about you. Why in the world would you ever be alone? Yeah, if you look at a Google engram, you know, which traces uh, word usage across time, you'll see that the word solitude, which uh, had more, more currency in the 19th century than it does today, and conversely, the word loneliness is used much more often than it was in the 19th century. So the way we describe aloneness, or actually experience aloneness, is in part shaped by the words we use. And if we describe it as solitude, it's probably experienced more positively than when it's described as loneliness. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I'm I'm in awe of you guys. This conversation was great. Scott Stevens, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Absolutely happy. I think the format of the show is fantastic. <laughs> thank you. And, and Luke Fernandez, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. And Susan Matt, I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you so much. This was really interesting. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. We recorded today's episode from the studios of KCPW in Salt Lake City. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.